Hello everybody, this is the Keen Atomic. Um, as you can tell, it's Nick speaking, which means it's a bonus episode. Um, joining me today, as always, is my co-host Danny. Hello. And um, Danny is currently sat opposite the table from me. She is within pen throwing distance. <laughs> Don't get any ideas. Um, so if you if you hear any like you know ow ow or smashing of glasses or knives being pulled or what have you then yeah you've been that, watching too much good fellows we, we don't yeah. do knives here yeah we don't do knives um so today's bonus episode uh if you weren't listening to our previous episode on frighteners and our snippet old lace is about judy garland um, because as per with our bonus episodes, it's kind of linking in with a recent season on the BFI. Also, I found that if it was a bit important, not just for me, because I'm not incredibly linked to, to Judy Garland's career. I'm, I, I didn't grow up being a fan, but I thought that given that it's everybody's celebrating 100 years since the birth of Judy Garland, and given that she was an incredible talent that, cannot be ignored we might just take some time and talk about her and her achievements i mean she's an actress that before really like you know setting like preparing for this podcast like she was a face that i kind of you know i she was one of the few hollywood faces that i could actually pick out yes i mean you know when me and danny started you know, doing the you know doing podcasts and stuff. Danny would send me a picture of somebody and go, "Who's this?" And then I wouldn't have a faintest clue. But Judy Garland was one of the few faces that I could actually pick out. And I'm saying that despite only seeing Wizard of Oz. Um, I I before now you know before we're preparing, I, Wizard of Oz was the only one I'd seen. I don't know right. what, whether what ones you'd seen before. I'd seen. Meet me in St. Louis and Judgment at Nuremberg. I sat through three hours of that and I had to watch it in two installments because it was a very grueling film. And I almost suggested it for the podcast, but I thought, I'm not going to put you through watching three hours of Judgment at Nuremberg. She's a um, supporting character in that film and she's exceptional. But I thought we would focus on the lighter work and the musicals. Not saying that most of the films that we will discuss are particularly light. Two of those films made me cry, and I'll talk to I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but yeah, I was I was familiar with Judy Garland's voice, but I was never enthralled by her. But we have to do you know give credit where credit is due. She could do most anything she could dance she could sing she was definitely a product of the studio system who took her mgm of course took her when she was like 13 and molded her and, and gave her all the lessons to to stardom that she could get including the bad ones so yeah what do you think of her now nick after seeing having seen three of her Three new films that you didn't know about. I think it's like because I watched these films in in chronological order, um, so I had to kind of like almost sit with the fact of what actually makes her, you know, the 
why 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 is why is the United was to sit there and think why is the BFI doing the season? Why is everybody talking about a uh, hundred years later? Yes. Why is Danny wanting to do an episode devoted on Judy Garland? Like it wasn't like Betty Davis, where it's you know your favorite actress, or wasn't like you know our Francois Truffaut or Nick Cage or anything like the things where they're like you know favorites of ours. It's more like. It's almost like we're, we're doing this because of the importance of who she is. And it's almost like sitting here and thinking, oh, okay, away from Wizard of Oz, like, what came next, almost? Yes, and a lot came, and we we don't... I mean, it's, it's hard to say what would have been if she had had a different start, but she wasn't always happy and but she was always radiant on on camera i think she might even have not the same quality but a similar quality to to garbo when the cameras are rolling she becomes this amazing entertainer and a, a whole different person comes out and she's just full of life and she's just full of energy and just so magnetic and you just can't look away and she was incredibly talented. I mean, the voice. And even as a dramatic actress, I think she was very, very good. So I wanted to explore that for a bit with with this bonus episode because I, yeah, I think she deserves our respect and our love. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm certainly on the same page with that. Um, should, we, should we go through these movies one after the other? Yes. Um synopsis thoughts background that kind of thing absolutely um so the first movie is meet me in saint louis 1944 directed by vincente minelli here's the synopsis young love and childish fears highlight a year in the life of a turn of the century family what did you think of meet me in saint louis um so if we think like if we think that wizard of oz because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going by the films that I've seen of her. So Wizard of Oz, you know, the first film that I've seen of her. When thinking of that, is like, it's a really a vehicle, really, for Judy Garland, really. Yeah. Um, this film felt more of an ensemble piece, um, you know, with Mary Astor, Lucille Brennan, and and, and Leon um, Ames. Is that right? I think, yeah. Yeah. Um, among, among, you know, many, many others. But the kind of, with, with ensemble movies, like, I think it kind of helps, you know, with the message and, and themes of the movie if you have, like, almost like a lead, you know, in the movie, which is Esther Smith, I, I think is, like, yeah more of the lead in, in any, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think so, but you have to, I mean... Don't you agree that Margaret O'Brien seals every scene she's in? Yeah, 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 yeah. As uh, Tootie. Tootie, yeah. I was going to say Dotty. No, Tootie. I, just, um, I can't. Yeah. Um, I think, as, as a movie, this is kind of, you know, the story of four girls, each kind of going through, like, different stages in their lives and the build-up to, like, the, this this massive event in St. Louis um, that's going to happen at the, the World's Fair. Yes. Um, Which was a real event. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they don't really do World's Fairs anymore, do they? No, and I've read that this World Fair uh, was 
took place at the same time as the um, Olympic Games, which were held in the US for the first time in St. Louis. And it backfired massively because everybody was interested in the fair and nobody was interested in the Olympic Games. So, yeah, I think this was thought um, up by uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And yeah, it was not good. Oh dear. Oh dear. Yeah, apparently the, the organization went sideways yeah. <laughs> I, I was with the movie i think i was reputation for me meant that me me st louis was gonna be we'll say louis st louis they kind of say both in the movie it's kind of like it, it gave this impression for me that it was almost going to be too saccharine yeah and too yeah saccharine is the right word because sweet can yeah. be positive but saccharine is like mm, it's saccharine much. is the reason i stay away from most musicals 30s 40s 50 musicals i think yeah yeah i'm the, i'm very much i'm very much the same in that there is i think there's an if that kind of my i don't say my my uh assumptions but my all my prejudice but like my issues with that kind of era of musicals almost come it, it does actually i will come on to that in the next movie but with this one it it kind of for me it was for me it was like the assumption was that this was going to be a sac a really very saccharine movie and that the musical numbers were just going to be too much and the whole movie was just going to be a bit too much but i just ended up becoming really won over by it um you know, I think the idea of having the film kind of take place over, like, key parts across the year, kind of, like, it broke down the structure, of, broke down the structure and how the family kind of relates to each other and, and the events in this family. I think if it, if it took place over a course of, like, a month or something, then it would just be, be a bit too much. But because we are presented with different seasons across the year, it really helped the movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I think that my favourite one would have been, I think my favourite one would have been the, the Halloween one, I think. Yeah, mine too. Section. And I nearly sent you a picture, a screenshot of the, of the house when, when it does that, you know, full thing. Because that house at that, in that shot looks like the house from the Adams family. Yes. Um. Apparently, Vincente Minetti, sorry to interrupt, uh, Vincente Minetti filmed that whole sequence, um, the camera was held at a lower level yeah. because it was the whole section had to be seen through a child's eyes yeah. and to make the houses on the street look much, much bigger than what we would normally perceive them as. So, yeah, I, that is my favourite sequence as well. I mean, yeah. 2D is just incredible. Yeah, no, she was... Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, the, the, like I said, I think... You know that having these like, these parts, you know, the, the sections across the year, it meant that the mo the movie as an audience member, I wasn't becoming kind of dragged down by details that weren't essential. Um, it didn't seem like it was being padded out needlessly. Um, as each part kind of played out, it, it kind of worked. It worked in almost in an episodic manner. Yeah. It meant the film was much more easier to kind of digest. Um, in terms of what I think this means for Judy in nineteen forty four. Because at this at this point, you know, I don't. My knowledge of her is that she was in Wizard of Oz at a very young age. She was poached by MGM at a very young age. 
and she is the mother of Liza Minnelli. That's literally all I know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in terms of what, for me, this means for Judy in, in 1944, she seemed to kind of have a bit more of a command of the screen, like a more of a presence, like that the camera was more kind of, it was becoming more obvious, you know, 10, was it 10 years later after Wizard of Oz? Seven years later? When was Wizard of Oz? 34. 39. Was it 39? Yes. Why do I think it was 34? I don't know. What was 34? 34. I don't know what was 34, but uh, the first... Snow White? No, that was 37. That was I don't know. The first technical of film was Becky Sharp in 1935. Okay. So Wizard of Oz couldn't have been 34. Okay, so 39. So five years later after Wizard of Oz... I think the you know the camera kind of just felt okay. Like her screen presence was much more kind of natural and like a bit more powerful on the screen. Um, the kind of the music numbers and stuff they don't seem forced. They didn't seem like added on. No. They felt very natural, which is in my opinion, the best way kind of to do these kind of things. There was um, a camera who is, who is that said it, it might have been, I think, I think it was um, uh, Gareth Evans, um, Welsh film director, Gareth Evans, who did uh, the raid and the raid Two action movies. And I think it was him that said like the way action sequences kind of play out, is that they got to be natural to how the plot goes. Like, you can't yeah. just have can't duh, just duh, 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 and then an action scene. It yeah. has to be kind of flow and be with more of the plot. Yeah. And he said that musical sequences are the same thing. They are, like, they've got to be, you know, very, very natural to the way things move. That's why I think the the Spielberg West Side Story is one of the best musicals I've seen in, in a long time because Spielberg is a master of that kind of preparing for the action sequence you know think about how his set pieces are in in you know his classical blockbusters it makes sense that when he comes to do a musical number it would become very very natural to him so and i think my my favorite movie all that jazz the musical numbers in that they are very very natural cabaret we had the same kind of thing they felt very kind of natural to the world of, of, of cabaret movie st louis it's the same thing Obviously, it's not the same in okay. the it's not the same in like cabaret with you know it's all being put on a stage or what have you. I mean, meet me in St. Louis is like it just felt like a set piece that kind of just had to happen, but it felt natural. Yeah. Speaking of, did you know that today was Bob Fosse's birthday? I did not know that. I just checked it, and yes, Bob Fosse's birthday. But yeah, so it feels natural that we talk about musicals today. So yeah, there it is. 23rd of June. 23rd of June. Um, everything back to Fosse, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, it has to be It has to be natural. It has, has, to, has to be natural. And I think that's why, I think Make Me St. Louis really, really worked for me. And it was the, that kind of combination of the episodic nature almost of the movie really, really helped the structure. The performances were very, very good. Judy Garland and... Uh, uh, Margaret Margaret O'Brien. Margaret O'Brien, yeah. And Mary Astor. I mean, it took me a minute to be like, oh yeah, that's Mary Astor. Um, she's not being a bitch. 
Um, <laughs> she's not trying to steal the Maltese Horse. <laughs> she's not trying to, you know, screw over Humphrey Bogart. Um, <laughs> more ways than one. Um, I think, you know, it, it. the film really worked for me. And I think that's kind of about as far as I'm going to go without going into my thoughts for the next one, because very much what was very, very worked for me about this one will bring me on to the next one. But let's move on. Let's go on yep. to your backgrounds and thoughts and what have you. Yeah. St. Louis. Sounds good. So, yeah, I watched this on a Christmas, well, period, because I was looking for Christmas movies, which I hadn't seen before. And I took the plunge and ignored the fact that it was a musical and I didn't like musicals. So and you watched Gremlins too. <laughs> and Gremlins. You watched Gremlins finally? No. <sighs> I'm talking about proper Christmas movies, not... Gremlins. Yes. Anyway, I watched... Um, I watched it and... I... I was, I was basically won over by Margaret O'Brien and I thought she was the best child actor ever um especially during the mgm studio system and i i did get judy's appeal and she's a very good singer i mean the trolley song i i watched the film for the second time for the podcast and the trolley song was stuck in my head for days apparently she did that in one take oh wow Yes, and um, but I didn't. Yeah, I did. I did enjoy it. Uh, the first time around, I enjoyed it. Okay, but second time, it it was much better. And towards, I mean, when she sings "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas" and you see Margaret Ryan with tears in her eyes, you just want to bawl your eyes out, and you just want to grab both of them and just hold them tight because you know that they're both very, very vulnerable in this crazy world of the studio system. Am I right in thinking that that song is from Meet Me in St. Louis? Like, as in, like, it was a song specifically written for Meet Me in St. Louis and then it became no. a Christmas song. Why did I think that? I don't know, because I'm, I'm not too sure, but I think it's it wasn't. It was written... Um, let me just double-check. Quick Googling going on here. Yes. Um, I think it's not... Um, it was written in 1940. It was introduced by Judy Garland, but I think the... the Yeah, so it might have been written for it, but she didn't enjoy some lyrics and she had to change them. So, because in one of the verses, she wants to say... She, the original song was, Have Yourself a um, Merry to Christmas, It Might Be Your Last... Um, that's not dark. And that's not, yeah. And she's like, I don't want to do that, especially when you've got Tootie crying next to me. It's, yeah. So I think um, it, it changed into Let Your Heart Be Light. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was actually written for the film. Knew it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Sorry. So, yeah, you're right. Whilst, it, whilst it's in my head, like, do you think that the film almost cop it because I, I read a few reviews online on on letterboxd and there was a couple of them that's that would kind of lean towards the fact that the film almost suffers because the father cops out at the end and it's like we're staying in st louis and not moving to new york do you 
kind of do you prescribe to that view at all? Well, you have to you have to look at it in context. This was made in 1944. The war was still waging, so they were trying to keep the family sort of dynamic going and maybe just yeah the family values sort of promoted not you know go into the world because you know what's gonna wait out there so there was it was that was i think that was the message um i don't know i think for 90 i mean if you think about it it was made it was made it was based on on, on a story and the writer Sally Benson, it was her life that she was, it was a bit like Mary Louise Alcott and Little Women. So it was the story of her and her sisters and how they lived in St. Louis. Louis. Um, so I don't know, I don't know if, if it was, I don't know. I don't, I didn't mind it, but in if you think about it, 1904, women weren't allowed to do anything really. So to have someone you're betrothed to in a different live in a different city would have been too hard. So maybe that's why they kind of went. I don't know if it was a cop out, but I think it was like okay, maybe let's just simplify things and leave them in St. Louis. I don't know if it was me, but there was kind of something about the ending that felt almost as though like if. If you would like to flash forward five years, like St. Louis would have been, you know, I think I think this is a case of, you know, we watched Grips of Wrath recently, and I'm knowing knowing <laughs> knowing what comes next in American um, history. It almost, how dark is that? I don't know. I mean, it, it's just I think maybe it's just me, but it's like knowing what comes next in American history. You know, like a few years later, it's it it feels as though I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just, yeah, I just kind of had to say. <laughs> I'm not saying that the family is going to turn it to, uh, turn into the. Um, they don't own a farm, so they they, farm. they're lawyers. They will be fine, but they will probably. Everybody will hate them because they have. They have. They have something. Yeah, let's not go there. Let's not go there. <laughs> what are you doing? It's Whatever. a musical. It's about Christmas. It's supposed to be nice. Although I did cry when I saw. I mean, my. I like the ending. I thought that the proposal at the end was one of the funniest proposals I've seen on film. I don't know if you agree, but it was really well well done because you you, you start the movie with this with Rose wanting to get married and waiting for that proposal that never almost never comes. It has to you have to wait until the end of the film for the proposal to come, and it comes in a very angry way. <laughs> I love you. Finger, finger pointing. <laughs> finger pointing. Like I'm gonna marry you. Yeah. Um, which I I found funny, and the heartbreaking scene where Tootie smashes the snow people. Very, very fake snowman. Yeah. Yeah, I just yeah, it did look a bit fake, but it was very sad as well. No, it it works like narratively. It, it really is quite impactful. Yeah. In, yeah, I, I just, think after that scene was over, I was like looking at the snow and going, ah, that's the snow. <laughs> Sorry. You're so cynical. I'm very cynical today. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> right. Um, it's almost as though I saw a gangster movie last night. Did you really? Yeah, I think I did. Well, I was, um, yeah, just a bit of background. 
Nick and I went to the Prince Charles Cinema last night and saw Goodfellas. And in 35mm. In 35mm on the big screen with an audience and it was incredible. And we were very sad to... It was as a tribute to the great, late, yeah. great Ray Liotta. I think I think we're gonna have to talk like we're gonna we're gonna I think when we do our next episode, um, we will talk. About we're gonna it. when we do what we've been watching. I think we're just we ignore what we've been watching and just talk about Goodfellas for a bit. Yeah, I think that's kind of what we need to do. Um, um, let's go up to Margaret O'Brien for a bit. Yes, let's do um, that. So she was awarded a special Oscar for Best Child Actor. They did that. They used to. Uh, Judy Garland was also awarded a special Oscar for uh, The Wizard of Oz. They used to do that before they actually decided that child actors could compete in the normal Oscars. So remember when we had our conversation on Paper, Paper Moon, Moon? Yeah. It was uh, Linda Blair and Tate O'Neill were the supporting actress. Yeah. Despite the fact that they are leading actresses. Yes. Both those movies, yeah. 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 So this is something interesting that I found. So apparently Margaret O'Brien had a rapid ascent to stardom and her mom, her mom because... She was really talented. Her mother believed that they were entitled to a significant raise, and she used the film as leverage, realizing how integral the ro- the role of Tootie would be to the story. Uh, MGM raised the ante by announcing the casting of Sharon McManus in O'Brien's place. McManus was the daughter of a studio electrician, and the brass went so far as to fit her with costumes, assuming this would pressure O'Brien's mother into accepting the terms. But they held fast, and MGM was ultimately capitulated. Although once production started, O'Brien was filming a scene where, when McManus's father, who was the electrician, intentionally dropped a heavy lighting instrument from the catwalk to the soundstage, narrowly missing her by a few inches. He was definitely ta- he was then taken away and admitted to a mental institution. Cause... Not not arrested. Well, you'd have murder. to be crazy to try to kill a child. I mean, sent fucking out. That's... He, yeah, he... You're telling me not to be dark. Well... Unless you're telling stories about killing children. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I, I think that we can't avoid talking about Judy Garner's career without talking about how she... How her health was a major factor in it and how she had health problems from almost the get-go because of the great problem with, well, child actors being forced to work long hours. So they would be given uppers, amphetamines, and then they would give downers like Valium or whatever they were giving them. Um, So she developed addiction from a very early age since she was on probably the set of Wizard of Oz and whatnot, or the Andy Hardy movies with, what's his name? Mickey Rooney. Um, so by the time 1944 rolled in, she was already addicted. So she had some health problems during the shoot. She delayed production by 13 days. And I think in one of her memoirs, Mary Astor t- says that she approached her because they had worked together previously on, on MGM. And she approached her and sort of confronted her as to why she was holding down production. And she, Judy said to her that she can't, she couldn't sleep. Um, but she was eventually dismissed by Mary Astor. And I think Mary Astor regretted it later on because she didn't really know the extent of the problems that 
Judy Garden had with being able to sleep and being able to function as a normal human being. Also, if you think about it, Judy was probably the only one who had to stay off uh, after filming ended during the day to record songs. Mm. So she had to do uh, extra work. So yeah, ruthless world for youngsters. But yeah, um, I think it also is worth mentioning some people regard this as a great love letter from Vicente Minnelli to Judy Garland. They met um, on the set and fell in love. And Judy said that she never felt more beautiful than when she was being photographed by Vincente Minnelli. And this was also due to the fact that she had different costume designers and different um, um, stylists from the usual MGM one. What had happened was the MGM forced her to have her teeth capped and put, I think I'm getting it right, um, nose discs to make her nose more arched to make it look, her profile look, I don't know, better or whatever. Basically, this is a well-known fact that MGM studio head Louis B. Mayer always thought she, she, he always make her feel ugly. He would call her my little hunchback and he would always make her feel um, less glamorous and less beautiful than say Lana Turner or um, all the other MGM stars that were uh, like Hedy Lamar, for instance. So she always had this complex of inferiority. So when they did her makeup slightly differently on this film. They, um, the cinematographers worked on, on, on lighting her differently. She really, she was really made to look really, really beautiful. And you can see how she, how radiant she is. I don't know if you, if you picked up on that. I think she was, she's, she looks much, much diff more different than that's why maybe you, you, you thought that the wizard of Oz was much earlier. Because there's massive difference between the Wizard of Oz and this film in terms of lighting, in terms of the way she looks. I, I think I, I would say like if you were to if you were to say who what if you were to say to somebody, oh, think of Judy Garland. I think the Make Me in St. Louis look would be the one that people would probably go to the most. I was kind of almost obsessed with her hair as well. It uh, it was a very like different, you know. It's it was just I don't know. It was just very different <laughs> yeah i think she was at her most beautiful in this and i think it influenced her into choosing to marry vincente minnelli so yeah and without that we wouldn't have liza minnelli would we no we wouldn't so yeah this is where all it all started on the set of mid me and saint louis cool so ending that uh, on a happy note, not talking about what happened next. How, how many years later are we going to next movie? We're going to 1949 with um, In the Good Old Summertime. I don't know why the title, because it doesn't have anything to do with summertime. Yeah. But, yeah, it was directed by Robert Z. Leonard of The Divorcee and the Great Zigfeld fame. And here's a quick synopsis. 
In turn of the century America, Andrew and Veronica are co-workers in a music shop who dislike one another during business hours, but unwittingly, unwittingly carry on anonymous romance through the mail. Sound familiar, doesn't it? Stop it, you like it. In the first five minutes of this, I went through a bit of a, a bit of a storm. Yeah. First, I recognised uh, Otto Otto Overkogen, uh played by uh, S.C. Uh, Sukasako. Sukasako. Um, first, initially, as I said, look at that, it was Carl in Casablanca. Of course. And Professor Magenbruch from Ball of Fire. Yes. Then I saw the store, and then I recognised the open exchanges on both. I recognised the open exchanges and how the conversations were going, mm. and it was like. This is shop around the corner. Yes. And then I was like, okay, okay. And then, and then I saw, uh, and then if that wasn't enough, I, I saw Buster Keaton. Um, so it was a bit of a roller coaster that first five minutes. So after seeing that, it was like, okay, I'm pretty hyped for this because I've said before that, you know, when we did Shop Around the Corner on the podcast as a Christmas episode, I was like, I was really won over by the movie. And then when we saw it, actually, last time I was in London, um, we saw it at the cinema, and, and it's, in my opinion, the best Christmas movie ever made, um, behind Gremlins. And... I'm going to kick you. <laughs> Ow! Why did you stab me in the leg for? I did not do anything! Um... <laughs> <laughs> So I think I was really interested to see where this would go, okay? Because it's it, it kind of interests me where like different adaptations of the story goes. And it's been being very very honest. This felt this fell flat for me, okay? Um, Buster is in nowhere near enough for this. I know, I know, it's criminal. Um, and and that's kind of just the start. Van Johnson is is this movie's Jimmy Stewart and. He's not Jimmy Stewart. He's not Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> he sounds like he's trying to do an impression. And if I actually, I tell you what, no, he sounds like he's someone trying to do an impression of the Jimmy Stewart impressions in The Simpsons. <laughs> so The Simpsons has these great Jimmy Stewart bits. There's one. There's a rear window one. There's a. a um, there's another great one, which is uh, the bank's lost all your money and. You know that that scene in The Simpsons, it, it, it's amazing. There's a great Jimmy. St- I can't remember which member of the cast. Might be Dan Castaneda. Might have done the the voice. But anyway, but it sounds like he's trying to do the impression of The Simpsons impression, and it just it's just wrong. It doesn't work. He's all wrong for the role. Yes. He doesn't look right as well for the for the. For he doesn't think it in any numbers, does he? I don't know. I don't think so. So he's just. I will be honest. Flat. I kind of switched off at one point because the plot didn't go anywhere, right? Okay, so because this, like I said, like the, the the musical numbers didn't feel that good either, and the plot and the story and what have you, because I'm so familiar with it because it's shop around the corner, it just seemed to sp- stutter. It's way through it. Yeah. And it just didn't work for me. And like I said with Meet Me in St. Louis, when I was talking about musical numbers and how, like, the best ones, they should feel organic. 
it, no, this, this, there's no orga, or, organic nature to any of these. They try to do it with setting the shop instead of a leather shop, a music shop. But yeah, with hearts. I mean that heart, that that number with, you know, because it, it does it does the same thing because you have Judy Garland in the Margaret Sullivan role. Yeah, and. You know, if you think about the shop around the corner, it's Margaret Sullivan sells the music boxes. Instead of a music box, it's a harp. So Judy Garland sings a song with a harp. I think that was the only time I was actually kind of, oh, that's an interesting way of doing things. And it was an inter- it was an o- it was an okay song, and I thought, okay, that's a it's a not it's an okay song to kick off with, and then and then it just it just and there was a whole thing like instead of, you know. Um, uh, I can't remember the name of the shop owner and shop around the corner. Um, oh my god! Oh god! I had it in my in my head, Mister Matuchek. Matuchek. So instead of Mister Matuchek and his wife having the affair, yeah, which is quite an interesting, it's a in, very very interesting it, way yeah. of doing yeah. things. Um, there's a really interesting dynamic. I think Buster is meant to be the role originated by, from. From the guy that had the affair. Yeah, the guy who got yeah. But it doesn't do that. No, it, he it, he's underused and it's criminal. I'm not going. But to... it's not just him. It's like the thing about shop around the corner is that they all the supporting cast members feel essential to the to the to the movie, yeah. whereas this it was just like it it was it was like it's the Judy Garland and Van Johnson show, and and Van Johnson's not and very Van Johnson was, was was shit. If I'm being honest, like, I, I felt yeah. really gutted watching this. It was like, oh, because I like Shop Around the Corner. I really, really do. And I'm really interested to see what somebody else does with the material. And it just went nowhere with it. It just kind of... And it, it the film almost stopped. It stood still at one point. Yep. And I had this whole, like, dinner dining sequence. I Like I said, I switched off. I, I think I switched off. Like, I was watching it. But nothing was kind of coming in. It wasn't compelling in any kind of way. There's a whole thing to do with a, with a with a violin, and it was like, what is this? Um, I mean, there was one good joke with the violin at the beginning, and that was kind of it. Anyway, I talk about Judy because that's. I think when she's, you know, I was I was when she was introduced into the shop, I already knew what role she was going to be playing. Like when she, you know, she's she initially has that sequence with Johnson on the steps with the bird and stuff. It's like a meet cute kind of thing, and it kind of just doesn't go. It doesn't do anything really. Doesn't it? Doesn't. I think that's the best scene in the film. I think you're probably right. Um, but it doesn't doing anything. It doesn't really. It just. I don't know. It just because the thing about shop around the corner is that if I'm right, Margaret Sullivan, Jimmy Stewart, and they meet in the shop first. If that's all right. They do. They do, which is more much more organic and just feels better. Yeah, but if you think about it, they meet at the post office because she's going yeah. to pick up... He's left the car, the letter... But we don't know that at that point. Yeah, but we don't really know Well, we... It's screaming at uh, you. Yeah, no, it, it's not like... It's not spelled out. It's not like what happens here in this movie where it's spelling out these two people are meeting now for the first time. Yeah, but if you know that what the, what the story is, if you know what the, the original material, what anyway, I was yeah, I saw it a mile. Okay, so 
Anyway, so I, I think when Judy comes into the shop, I really know that she's going to be the Margaret, Margaret Sullivan role. And I don't think she's well served by the film, but I don't think that's her fault. I think no. in terms of performances, she's perhaps the best one, but I'm only saying that because Buster Keaton's in like 30 seconds of the movie. And he's like, you know, sixth lead or something. I she has no chemistry with Van Johnson. I mean nope. I mean she has more chemistry with the heart that she plays at the beginning. Um and I you know, that's kind of like that's that's the thing with the story. Like you need to have like there's you know, you think with Margaret Sullivan and Jimmy Stewart, you know, that there's there's a, there's chemistry there. There's something there between them. Even when they're at each other's, you know, throats, there is still chemistry between them. Whereas Brian Johnson and, and Trudy Garland is just like, what? what is this? What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. Like this movie Get a hold of yourself. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think this movie even needed to be made at this point, because it's 49, we're saying. And Shop Around the Corner was 1940, but they wanted to make it into a musical version of the same story. And no. Not needed. It's not needed. No. So yeah, are you done? I am done. Butchering the film. Yeah, I mean, I, and it was because of my experience watching this meant that I didn't do the insane thing for the next movie. But we'll get onto that. Okay, I have to agree with you. I didn't like this film very much. I hadn't seen it before the podcast, so it, I only wanted just to watch it, and I put it on the list because of Buster Keaton, obviously. And it was based on the same material as The Shop Around the Corner, um, the 1937 play called Parfumerie. Um, on, on paper, it ticks boxes. Yes, yes. So I was like, yep, this could be fun. But it was just, no. There's lots of shaking of the head going for this for this audio yeah. audio me, audio medium. You know, like, <laughs> there's a lot of the shaking We're not, of the we head. We are not impressed. Not impressed. Um, I don't have much um, background information, but I do know that Buster Keaton was working as a gag writer at MGM when this movie was made. He had been fired in 1933, but he was kept. So, I have to. <laughs> and now, uh, joining us on Buster Keaton Corner, it's uh, Danny Bilou. Danny, how are we doing today? <laughs> so... Buster Keaton was signed with MGM in 1928. Um, it was a very, very bad idea. But he was paid about three, four thousand um, dollars a week. When he was fired in 1933, he was brought back for two hundred dollars a week as a gag writer, and he was not given any roles in front of the camera. So he was just a gag writer. And famously, he said. He was asked by somebody, "Is like, how does he feel now for to go from three thousand a week to two hundred a week?" And he just shrugged his shoulders and said, "Well, if I'm worth more, they'll pay me more." He took everything in his stride, and he was like, "You know, one day you're happy and you're top of the world, and one the other day you get fired and you get paid peanuts." But yeah, he um, he was approached to um, help devise a way for the violin to get broken that would be both comic and plausible for, for this film. So he came up with the appropriate fall. That was okay, I think. And... Did he do the whole bird thing at the beginning? Because that was... Like, like I said, 
best scene in the movie, perhaps, and it happens right at the beginning. Yeah. I so basically when he was approached to do to do the violin to help devise a, a technique for the violin, but then the producers realized that nobody could do it but him, so they gave him the role. So he goes with the, with the violin and he falls. And they realize that, yeah, you can tell people to do that, but nobody would be able to do it as well mm -hmm. as he could. So they like, okay, you, you're in the movie. Because he was um, just a gag writer. But yeah, he basically, he devised a sequence in which Van Dawson um, wrecks Judy Garland's hat. I thought that was really funny. Yeah, good. And he coached, he basically coached Johnson how to perform the scene and how to do the whole. I thought that was really good. That was I, it was one of the, it's one of those films that if you look back, it like it's it peaks in, in the first five minutes <laughs> with the scene with and you like you see the whole thing where you've got you've got doves all around and he takes one and he puts it on a hat, a live bird. Do you remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's just like okay, I can see that a mile away, but it was it's still funny and it still makes you laugh. It's like it'd be, it'd be like the first like. But I said the first five ten minutes, you're like, okay, that's a really interesting gag, and then you're starting to clock like, okay, no, this is yeah. a shop around the corner again. Okay, Judy Garland's in this, and Buster Keaton's in this, and then it just it just does nothing. Yeah, I felt sad because they they didn't use Buster for for his talents, and I was yeah I was I yeah I was expecting more from this film. He was cast in the wrong role. I think he should have been the role that was originated by. I can't remember his actor. I don't know the actor. I can, all right, so I, he was in, uh, he's in To Be not or Not To Be, and he says, uh, what you are, I wouldn't eat. Um, Felix Bressart? Yes. So he Felix. should have been that role. Yeah, yeah, the one with the moustache. The one with the moustache. Yeah. Felix if think Bressart. Of, like, yeah, he should have been that role. I know. Not the role of the conniving guy that sleeps. he's never conniving. Because he, he doesn't have that, he doesn't have the fit, he doesn't have the attitude for it. No. So, that now ends Buster Keaton Corner. I think we have to kind of draw a line under this, because otherwise it's going to go on for ages. Yeah. Um, join us next week when we talk about hats and trains. Um, <laughs> did you, did you, um, did you see, did you pick up on Liza Minnelli's cameo? Right at the end? Yes. An ending that, I mean, what is that? I mean, I mean, Shop Around the Corner ends really, really well. Like, amazingly well. And, like, I remember yeah. sitting there in the cinema watching it for the second time, and I was like... <laughs> Tears streaming down my face, thinking, dear God, it's wonderful life, there's not nothing on this. And, and then it's like, this movie just tacks on this kind of, like... Yeah. They should have said, what was it? What was the line? I'm confused, but I feel, um, physically, I feel, hang on, I need to find this. What was it? Psychologically, I'm very confused, but personally, I feel just wonderful. They should have just ended it there. But then they just kind of tack on this ending of them as a happy family. And it's like, oh, really? Don't yeah. need it. It's not needed. It's not needed. Anyway, I think we we might just be done with. I think I think we're done because like I think because both of us are fans of Shop Around the Corner. Both of us are fans of of uh, Mr. Keaton, and I think both of us are disappointed with the outcome of this. Yeah, 
I think the producers missed a trick, but yeah. Okay, let's move on to the final film that we'll be discussing on this podcast tonight, which is 1954's A Star is Born, directed by George Cukor. Here's the synopsis. A film star helps a young singer and actress find fame, even as age and alcoholism send his own career on a downward spiral. So what did you think of this film? So because of my experience with In the Good Old Summertime, I abandoned my insane plan to watch every version of A Star Is Born. Why? Because I I didn't want to sit and compare with other, you know, with other with other things. Because I, I ended up doing it a lot with The Good Old Summertime. I ended up just comparing it with The Shop Around the Corner. And I didn't want to do that to a star as well and i kind of was doing it slightly because we've already seen a version of this story with what price hollywood mm-hmm. and you know which is basically a star is born uh in all but name and but i felt like i kind of just had to give this film its due mainly because we're doing this for judy you know doing it judy garland Yes. This isn't a recording, a, a special on Fair every single enough. version of A Star Is Born. You know, because I could just, I don't know, I, I, I could talk about, you know, Bradley Cooper's relationship with John Peters, for example. You know, it, it's... No need. No need. You don't, you don't need it, you know. and I So, yeah. <clears throat> I wanted to give this its due... So by all intents and purposes, this is a very, 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 very good film. <laughs> I was going to punch you if you'd said otherwise. <laughs> this film is utter dog shit. Ah, oh, it stabbed me in the heart. Um, yeah, no, it was. It's it's pretty damn good. I mean, I'm right. Am I right in thinking we both had the cut and restored version of the movie? Is that right? I saw that. Yes, I think yeah. so. I saw this at the BFI on Sunday, where I had no idea what I, I had no idea that the film had been cut and restored with publicity stills and and the audio. So I was a bit confused, but then I, I read about it and it made sense. Yeah, because I was watching it on on Amazon Prime, and you know Amazon have this thing where they got a trivia thing. Yes, yes. And when that when that started off, I was like, okay, they're going to have something in this trivia thing about it. So I looked at the trivia, and it was like, um, because the original version of Star Wars one was cut to shreds by Warner Brothers. Yes, well, um, Harry Warner, who was the Jack Warner, was the West Side. Harry Warner was New York offices. He thought it was too long. It was about three hours. Yeah, and they cut it. They cut it down. And it just didn't work. But then 20 or so years later, I think it was Sidney Lumet came in and just basically put together this version that we now kind of see, which is taking publicity stills and, like you said, the recordings and little snapshots, seeing things as, you know, transitions almost. Um, Yeah, I mean, the runtime is daunting. Three hours. It's daunting. It's the longest version of A Star Is Born. Yeah. I looked it up. It was the longest version. And you're starting to, and at that point you're looking at that and you're thinking, why? Like, why Why is this version three hours and the others are like two? You know, we're thinking, why, why is this? And I think it felt necessary. 
I think for this version it felt somehow necessary everything was allowed to kind of breathe you know it was like it got across everything that was needed and everything kind of just felt essential and it really helped the main relationship between Norman Maine and uh, Esther Blanche. Esther, I don't know. Vicky Lester. I, Esther, what? It's blank, blank, isn't it? Yeah, blank, something. Yeah, because they say to her, oh, we'll, we'll change that in a week. Yeah. Um. So I think it was a bit longer because of the born in the trunk section, which was quite a number. Because it's a film within a film within a mm. film, actually. Because she sings about being born in a trunk and then there's a flashback of a flashback. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the, ma the main problem. But funny enough, that was not that was not cut. The Because of that, they decided to cut other things. Okay. As you do. Yeah. As you do, Warner Brothers, as you do. Um... There was significant attempts to kind of at scale and grandeur, I think, with this. Um, it, it was almost as though it was because setting this, it was as though it was like, all right, we're doing a Star Wars War again for the third time. You know, we're going to do it with this era of Hollywood. I think because this era of Hollywood in the 50s, it's like, it's very much like the glamour is kind of almost overpowering what Hollywood is, I think. Hollywood is is the image is even more blown up. Yeah. You know, this is before, you know, the crash of the sixties coming in and, you know, having to do, you know, Easy Rider and what have you. You know, it's this is before it's like almost as though it's like it's the it's the it's the uh it's the <laughs> to use a to use a a recent uh event, uh it's like the bankers spending their billions before the crash, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think in in 1954, they were trying to fight TV. Mm. And that's why you had Cinemascope. That's why you had all these lavish yeah. productions. And... and I think this was like an example of that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the musical numbers I thought were very, very, very good. Um, again, it's that whole thing of like they felt natural, you know, didn't feel like they were being forced into the scene at all. It was like, I just, I just found oh. the film's final budget was five million, making it Warner Brothers' most expensive film and the second costliest in Hollywood history, just behind Duel in the Sun, which was what was the one Duel in the Sun, nineteen forty six, Duel in the Sun. Okay, not heard that one. It's it's Scorsese. We'll talk about it later. We'll talk, oh, we'll talk about it's, it's one of Martin Scorsese's favourite films, which made me want to watch it. Which, yeah, was only ex more expensive than A Star Is Born by 200,000. Why do I think like, Ben Hur would have been up there for like, the expensive movies ever made? It was expensive, but it wasn't as, as expensive as that. Mm -hmm. I think it was only about 2 million okay. at the time. Adjusted for inflation, surely like something like... 200 million. Yeah. Or... Billion. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Sorry. No, that's all right. No, 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 no. It's a good point. Um, so I think a thing that, that I think me and you really noticed um, 
if we're talking, you know, about Judy Garland, I think one of the things uh, me and you, because we were talking about it yesterday, was that there's a number, that number, the film within the film within the film, mm-hmm. and she has short hair, short black hair. Yeah. And it is scary how much she looks like her daughter. Or how much her daughter, daughter looks, looks like her. Like yeah. And, and then you kind of think about it more and then you hear how her voice has kind of developed. If you think about like the development in the, the three movies of Judy Garland, with, in the, you know, with the three movies that we're doing, her voice becomes much more powerful. Yeah. There's almost like... You know, I think when we're talking about, um, I don't know if we mentioned it when we spoke about Cabaret, but there was a thing with Liza Minnelli's vocal performance in that that was very much like a vibrato, like a bravado kind of to it. And I think Star is Born does that with Judy Garland, as, you know, her her vocal performance is, you know, yeah. power behind it. And it, it, it's, um, it's incredible. Um, I think James Mason... Tragic playing uh, uh, Norman Maine, uh, yeah, I think it was very, very good, very, very good performance. It could have come across like a almost like a thankless role, um, but you really, I really became convinced, like really convinced with his struggle, and not just yeah. his struggle, but his his like devotion to Esther, you know, and that really, I think that ending you know, the tragic ending, it's not because of, it's not because of grief or desperation of him being desperate. It's almost because of his pride has gone. And like, he feels like he has to go for the sake of her because she is emblematic of, like, she is proof of his yeah beliefs almost. And his faith in and her. And his faith in her. And... Yeah, I think that scene in in when he's in the bed and he's listening in, yeah, and he's sort of falling apart. I think that was very good acting from his part. He was. They were both nominated for best actress, best actor. Did Norman? Uh, did James Mason? Who won? Who won that year? In, in... Um, yeah. Googling going on here. Nominated for six Oscars, not winning any. So, 1955, Marlon Brando for On the Waterfront, which we will have next week. Next week. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we'll talk next week about whether Marlon Brando did a better job than James Mason. Who else was nominated that year? Bing Crosby for The Country Girl, Humphrey Bogart for The Cane Mutiny, and Dan O'Herlihy for Robinson Crusoe, which I've not yet seen. I've not seen The Country Girl either, but we'll talk about it in a minute. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I, this, yeah, I can't really say much more. I mean, it's kind of a thing when the, these great movies kind of come, we end up talking about great movies. It's like you kind of just end up sat there like, well, it's great. What more do you need to say? It's pretty damn good. Yeah. Um, I, you know, when it, when I'm talking about the movie, as the movie, not background and stuff, because I know, I know nothing. Um, <laughs> I'm from Barcelona. Um, I think what? The Porty Towers, Manuel. Oh, I know nothing. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, I, Judy Garland as her, so I think she was really, really like magnetic. I think is the right word for it. Yeah. Um, you know, there was something about how the camera was just almost like drawn to her. Um. Yeah. No. I. Yeah. Pretty damn good. And I'm glad we finished on A Star Is Born. Yes, okay, it has a pretty, you know, down of an ending, but rather this than what would have been, you know, Judgment at Nuremberg next. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad You we... can just slash for this right off. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm glad we, we finished uh, this Judy Garland thing at A Star Is Born. I think, like... Okay, actually, we'll, 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 you'll do your background and then we'll do, like, general thoughts on Judy Garland afterwards. Yes, yeah. okay. So... This film came after four years of not having worked in Hollywood for Judy. So the last film she did for MGM before she got fired was 1950's Summerstock, which I've not yet seen. And then this was a comeback film for her. And she was, she started off by being on her best behavior. In fact, the first major um, delays were technical because George Cukor started making the film in Warnerscope, which was a widescreen process that Warner Brothers had designed to compete with Cinemascope. But they realized that it was not perfected, so it wasn't. It didn't really look good. So then they um, basically negotiated the use of Cinemascope as they started shooting. So then they kind of had to reshoot some scenes, including the man that got away, the, 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 the scene in the club where she sings the man that got away, which is my favorite number of the whole film. So that was already costing 300,000 and they had just started. So then they had to, yeah, basically start everything in Cinemascope. And afterwards she, slowly lost control of herself she started calling in sick and then she missed three days and then three more days and then they had to postpone scenes because she didn't like the costumes she had to leave early because she was too sick and too tired but then she would instead of actually going and rest she would go to the races or go to sing in a nightclub so she was a bit erratic on on set so i don't know what um health problems she was having at the time but it doesn't i think what happens with judy she it doesn't show on on on, on screen it it's it feels looking at her perform appears to be so effortless it's as if she she she, she had been doing it since probably the day she was born but it's just so effortless and it feels really heartbreaking to know that she was not having a good time was doing this and she had so many health problems and so many other demons to fight with like i said the film was re-edited several times it premiered at um, 181 minutes and then they cut the film by 30 minutes and in 1983 all but five minutes of the cut footage was found and reinstated but some footage had to be reconstructed using production stills um i don't know if you noticed during the credits but this film was produced by sydney luft who was Judy Garland's husband at the time and the because the film budget was so high they did not make the money back and Judy Garland and Sydney left was were left broke and 
both Jack and Harry Warner had advanced money against the shares of the profit, but because they were no profit, they both they ended up suing Luft to get the money back, and then the contract, the Luft contract with Warner was cancelled. So unfortunately, this meant that financially they were not and none, they were none the wiser and also i mean everybody all the critics applauded her for her role because i think i think somebody said that it was a one-woman show more or less not to sort of throw shade at james mason i thought i thought he did a very very good job um so everybody was sure that she would win the oscar for best best actress um and best comeback but uh, she didn't and Groucho Marx called Judy Garland's not winning the Oscar for Star is Born, quote, the biggest robbery since Brinks. And there is a very well documented video from Be Kind Rewind on YouTube, where which I will link to in the show notes, explaining why she didn't win that night. And I think that's really good um, documentary. So, yeah, I, I really like this film. Um, it's just, yeah, it's probably her best performance bar none and she should have won the oscar but what can you say it's the academy we've we've had the conversation before we have had the conversation before yeah and uh, yeah i think um i think that's it this there's a lot of uh, production information but it's not as important as judy's being robbed the oscar i don't think so yeah, what uh, what are your final thoughts on Judy Garland's career? I think because she she died of an overdose. Is that right? Well, yes, but apparently when they did the autopsy, they said she was already living on borrowed time because her body was kind of like fading. I mean, she was must have been what the fifties. She was forty seven. Yeah, so, she was very young. Very young. I mean, like. I know, and you know, I know she, the story that well, after she died, they had to sell off loads of her, like pretty much all of her stuff to pay off debts and stuff because yeah, her estate was mismanaged from the first from day one because of her mother. Her mother yeah. was, and I think she Judy said herself that her mother was the real wicked witch of the West. I think Liza, you know, had to sell off a lot of the stuff, and yeah, um, so I think it's like. It's almost like one of those. She's like almost comes across like the one of the stars that, very much like corrupted by Hollywood. Yeah, like, a bit like Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, I was gonna say that as well. Like you know, really, you know, the bigger, the bigger name, you know, the bigger the name, the the bigger the, whole, the, bigger the heartbreak. Yeah, you know, Monroe, Marilyn Monroe dying and. Judy Garland going at 47, and then, like, the, the actresses that are so powerful, but they decide to not have any more, they decide just to leave it and quit, like um, the aforementioned Grace Kelly and, and one one Greta Garbo, you know, they, they're they just done with it, and they decide to leave. Um, yes. I think, I think Hollywood has its issues nowadays. I mean, that's kind of an understatement. But one of the things that I don't think it does do anymore is this kind of corruption of 
actresses in the same way that they did with Judy Garland and Marilyn Monroe, you'd argue? I would, I would, no, I, I tend to disagree because I think there's a lot that we don't know. And I think now with, with the advent of social media, there's that threat as well of presenting a certain image to the public. So maybe it's like that we don't know anything, whereas we knew stuff back then because it was all very much linked to link with all the time. Yeah, I think where where we are better off now is that there's not that much control from the studio, mm. but there is still control of a person of of a actor, actress, celebrity image that may or may not be dictated by themselves. I mean, look at Britney Spears. She didn't have any control of her career. Yeah. Yeah. And then all these things come to light much, much later. So it's, I think the problem here is that young talent is not protected. It's being exploited by parents, by greedy producers, greedy um, executives. And that is where the shame is. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? I When I saw The Star is Born, even as the credits started rolling, when I saw her name, I welled up because I knew that this was her bid at a new career. And it would have been had it not been for the fact that she had already burned most of the bridges. And I think that's why she didn't win the Oscar. And it's very um it's explained much better than I could in, in the in the video that I will link to in the show notes. But yeah, I think that I th- and but I think she has the last laugh because here we are decades later, we're still talking about her greatness and how good a performer and how good a singer and an entertainer she is. And a star is born is for for my money is is the one that encapsulates her best. You see her being a really good dancer, a really good singer, and a really good dramatic actress all in one. Yeah, no, I... I, I mean, no, yeah, I it's just really, really good. No disagreements there. Okay. So that's, uh, that's that. <laughs> that is that. <laughs> so next week we're talking about working men. Yeah, so on the waterfront and sorcerer. So, um, yeah, you need something to calm you down. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, yeah, we'll probably be doing our what we've been watching, probably just all on Goodfellas and seeing it on thirty five minutes. Yeah, I think that's something we kind of need to talk about. Um, so wrapping up, wrapping up. Danny, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Kino Joan and my website is kinojoan.co.uk. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler and my website is superatomovision.com. And our podcast Twitter is at Kinotomic, so drop us a follow on there if you haven't already. Podcast Gmail is kinotomic at gmail.com. Um, anything you want to know from listeners? What is your favourite Judy Garland performance? I realise we haven't touched on anything. Really? <laughs> on anything we haven't seen Summerstock we haven't seen The Pirate Easter Parade there's a lot of films with Gene Kelly which I've avoided because I'm not a big fan of Gene Kelly but we'll talk about it some other time 
yeah, so recommendations, I suppose, would we'll go into yes, that as well. Yes, please. Like, where would you, where would you, would Stop. like us to go next, really? <laughs> Um, okay, so um, with all that in mind, uh, it's a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. And a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. Until the sun shines through.